You're listening to the Awesome Podcast Network. Welcome back to your weekly blast to the past with 80s Revisited. This week we're going to talk about my personal picks for the best and most influential comic books released in that decade we love and cherish here on the podcast, the 1980s. Don't forget to hit us up at 80s Revisited on Twitter and let us know what you think. And let's get on with the show. This is 80s Revisited. I'm your producer, Jesse Sedgley. And now, your host, Trey Harris. Look at what's happened to me. We're gonna talk about comics today on 80s Revisited. <laughs> had to end it there again. I have to, I have to quit after... Before it gets too stupid, right? I make that mistake with my wife all the time. When like I, have that, I have that's one of the things I do to like annoy her is like we'll be listening to a song and like all of a sudden I'll start singing what we're actually doing, like <laughs> driving to get some dinner, you know, blah blah, you know, one of those little relationship quirk things. And I, I never, I've learned that I need to stop. Like I might have a good rhyme, but I need to stop immediately after that because I'm, I can't, I can't maintain it. I have no uh, longevity to like keep <laughs> making it up on the fly. So. Also, it's a song that has nothing to do with comics, kind of. Yeah, just <laughs> superheroes. Yeah. That's a, roughly about it. But yeah, as we haven't done in a very, very long time, the special new episode of Eddie's Revisited, uh, is we're going to talk about the top, my top ten comics of the 80s, my being Trey Harris, because I'm your host, and of course with me as always, my own sidekick, my own boy wonder, Jesse Sedgley. Yes, I am. Great job, chum. <laughs> But yeah, uh, you know, when we first started the podcast, we uh, if you look at our earlier episodes, we had much more sprinkles of variants, so to speak, with like video games and other things in there. Because it is 80s revisited, but movies are, are my forte. Uh, but of course, the 80s were so much more than just movies and uh, some of the other things we have talked about as well. One of the most important things that made up the 80s, that which uh, and the impact of which is still... Uh, relevant today, just look at the DC movie franchise, are the comic books that came out in the 80s. And if you don't like comics, we'll see you next week. We do, <laughs> next week, we'll be doing our Bill Paxton tribute episode with Weird Science. So there you go. There's your homework for next week already. If you're not into comics, hey, I understand. But hey, if you want to stick around, you might find some great reading material. Yeah. Uh, but anyway... So follow uh, us on Twitter in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. At 80s Visited. <laughs> Tweet us that you didn't. You're not in the comics, but you'll see us next episode. There you go. Uh, but Jesse, are you an avid comic book reader, or were you? When you I were was younger, at one or? time. I was a collector at one time. Mm-hmm. Around um, what time? Like '90s, I would imagine, or definitely in the early '90s. So yeah. Image, or no, it was mostly like X Men comics, mostly. Pretty much just. I mean, you were pretty much an X Men guy, a Marvel guy. Yeah, it was like at episode 280, so I could probably actually trace back when I was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uncanny 280. Yeah, um, right before issue 281, where they killed off Jean Grey again. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. I, I that was that was one of the first issues. Two X Men Uncanny Two Eighty One was one of the first issues that got me back into comics. Like, or let me remember that officially collecting them again, as opposed to just casually reading them whenever I could get them. Because again, uh, well, at least for me, I grew up in Walker, Louisiana. Winn Dixie would have a few selections of comics mm-hmm. uh, every now and then. When my mom would get gas at a gas station, I was with her. I'd run in to see what was there. Didn't really have them readily available in this yeah. area until much later when they actually became popular. I got them at like the K&B. Yeah, yeah, K&B and Denim. <laughs> they, they, would have, they had a whole like spinner rack full of yep, them. Yep, exactly. And uh, I remember when they like... I know that rack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when uh, anytime, it was so hard back in the day. Of course now, I mean, all these comics that we're going to talk about, I have digitally. Yeah. Like anybody, anybody who's interested in comic books, you can get any of these issues like while you're listening, which is insane based on the horror we had to go to back in the day to get them. You know, sometimes you have to go to Walden Books in the mall and then go to the another book, the other bookstore in the mall at the time and like, oh God, they don't have this one issue. I can't find out what's going to happen. Yeah, uh, if I was smart, I would have got that first appearance Deadpool. Yep, <laughs> I, on to when, it. I think I might have told this story, but when I, when I sold my last group of comics, I sold a New Mutants 98. Oh, wow. And that was, I got $400 for four long boxes of comics. But the the reason I actually got them sold was because I said, "Hey, if you if you pay, you know, if you buy them, I'll give you New Mutants ninety eight. That's about what it's worth. Exactly. So yeah. I just lost, you know, well, 
400 probably comics. at the time though it was a at bit. the time it wasn't yeah of course i knew post movie i mean and it was a i had a great condition one as well I'm, i got it off ebay like for like 15 bucks like years before when i was mm. actually collecting yeah because i wanted the new mutants run starting where x-force came into it which was new mutants 98 99 it ended at 100 and then you had x-force from there on out mm. uh but anyway yeah so i made money on it but however you know, I, I, when I was selling, I was like, I really shouldn't sell this because I, you know, they're going to make a Deadpool movie and this is going to skyrocket. And sure yep. enough, that's exactly what happened because that's the way it works. You have to sell your comics when nowadays you have to sell them when it's hot. Back then, it was worth it to keep some things. When I was collecting, you know, that, that myth that oh, this is going to pay for my college. Uh, you got an Action <laughs> Comics number one up in there. Yeah, that might. You got work. an Amazing Fantasy fifteen. In that case, no, you need to sell your shit if you're not a diehard collector. Uh, but anyway, uh, just to, you know, but when, like, for example, the Executioner song was one of the, the big X-Men crossovers back in the day, and it was crossing over in various books. It was some in Uncanny, some in X-Force, some in X-Factor, and not every K&B or every gas station got the offshoot X-Men books. So it was for, in this area where me and Jesse live, it was a hunt to find certain books, especially when they did multi-comic, multi-issue mm-hmm. crossovers and not just next issue. Because, you know, if, if you found X-Men at one store, they're going to get it next month, for the most part. They have Amazing Spider-Man. They might not have Web of Spider-Man or Spectacular, but they'll have Amazing. But again, that's totally changed today. Kids <laughs> these days will never know what we went through back in our day, Jesse, I tell you. Yeah, but uh, I, I have one little short box of comics under my bed, and 90% of it is my X-Men, my uncanny run. I have a small stack about three inches high. That's about all I have. Mm-hmm. That's that's all I kept. Uh, just I pretty much since I have them, I like to read comics. I, I collected them at one point, but I'm about the story and the characters now. I don't have room <laughs> to collect comic books anymore. When me and Autumn met, my bed sat on twelve long boxes of comic books. Like I didn't have a bed frame. I had a mattress, and that's how I stored my comics. I just pushed them into the shape, and it fit perfectly <laughs> the shape of my bed, and that's what my mattress sat on. I, I'm not even joking. Uh, so now I just have a small box, and I just kept I kept the issues that were important to me. Like I kept my the issue of X Men number one cover E that came when it came out that made me a diehard Jim Lee fan for life, and still one of my favorite comic in terms of artwork, one of my favorite pieces of artwork ever for a comic. You know, so I still have the ones that mean something to me that I will pass on because I don't need to. Oh, here's. Uh, Here's Spider-Man 89 through seven uh, through uh, 264, son. Enjoy them. <laughs> you know what? And oh, actually, don't enjoy them. Here's here's your iPad 87. Here's right. here they are digitally. Look at them there. Don't open them and expose them to air. You know, that kind of stuff. Which hey, if you collect comics, that's fine. Everybody at this table used to collect them. Uh, I, there's you know, just don't be under the myth that they're going to pay for your college ed- kids' college education because my your parents were right about that. They will not. Again, unless you got you know some first appearances of Batman or uh, stuff like that. Uh, otherwise, pipe dream. Sorry. Hmm. But anyway, uh, the 80s were a pivotal, pivotal time in the world of comic books. Uh, it marked the beginning of the modern age, also called the dark age of comics, because comics became dark and gritty, thanks to number one and number two on this list. And if you know what I'm talking about, you already know what number one and number two are. Uh, but just to give you some insight, the Bronze Age of comics... Uh, started in 1970 and ended around the mid-80s when the, this modern-slash-dark age began, which we're still in to today. Uh, and the reason the, you know these ages are segmented like that is because of the comic books of the 80s and the change in tone, what they did, what they told, what the artwork, everything came together in the 80s. Uh, for, to be perfectly honest, if, if you looked at the greatest comic book stories ever told, if you had to like, if you had, to, if you're a comic book fan, and you really stopped and thought about it, and you had to like pick ten story arcs, or ten like if you had to like create a list of somebody, the ten comics you should read before you die, mm. I would be willing to bet money that at least sixty percent of those choices would be from the eighties. Mm. I guarantee you, two of them would be, because if the two that I'm gonna, the top two of this list aren't on your list, you're not a comic book fan, or at least you don't recognize what these books meant. And again, any comic book fan, you probably should. Uh, you probably know exactly what they are already, but let's get started because there's going to be a, there's going to be two names that are going to come up an awful lot as we're talking about this. Uh, the first one again, uh, these are my ten choices for the best comics of the '80s. Some are individual issues, some are arcs. 
Uh, but all again, all 80s related. And we'll start off with Superman Annual number 11 for the man who has everything. Written by two names you will see again on the countdown, rest assured. Alan Moore and uh, artwork by Dave Gibbons, released in November 1984. Uh, I've never been, as an adult, I've never cared for Superman. Yeah. Because he's when you're a kid, he's awesome. Because he's Superman. <laughs> he but does as you get older, you you tend to be, you tend to evolve into a Batman fan, or you yeah. know, when you're a teenager, Spider Man most likely. I'm just you know, and then you eventually kind of settle on everybody because you you like comics. But this story is my favorite thing I've ever read that Superman ever did. And I didn't read this this one in the '80s. This was one that I came across much later when it was recommended to me. Like, hey, if you don't like Superman, you read this story and you will love Superman. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. If even if you don't like Superman, this is one of it's one of again it's on this list for ten best comics of the '80s. But it's probably one of my favorite single issues of all time. Uh, in a in a nutshell, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman show up at this Fortress of Solitude for Superman's birthday. Mm-hmm. And they show up, and Superman's got this flower-looking thing on his chest, and he's like, uh, "What's the word when you're comatose?" Uh, there's another word for it. I was thinking of, but comatose will do. And they don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. So, but basically, a villain called Mongol like ambushed Superman. I said, "Oh, it's a birthday present from one of my friends," and it basically it makes him see what he wants to see, like his dreams become reality in his mind. So he's dreaming, and he's dreaming that Krypton was never destroyed, mm. and all this other stuff. Uh, he's just tripping balls, basically. Basically, I mean, he's he's living out what his ideal life would have been, right? And then constant high, basically, and <laughs> then it gets taken away. So, if you have never seen Superman this pissed off, well, maybe since then you have, but there's this one. It's one of my favorite moments in comic book history. Uh, basically, Superman's fighting Mongol. It's a comic book, of course. He's going to fight the villain. This is, they don't kill off Superman until the nineties. And basically, Mongols like got Superman by the neck, and he's like, I, "I gave you everything you wanted." And Superman just looks at him and goes, "Burn!" and just unleashes like full force heat vision. <laughs> it's a, it's, it's so badass when you read it, which I just totally spoiled for you. But again, these are from the <laughs> '80s. You should read these. I should have read these already. Uh, but that moment is—it's one of those panels I always remember. I can see it clear. It's right there in the top right corner. I can see it already, Jesse. That—that's it right there. Mm. It's I, it's just etched into my memory, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's, it's, again, if you're a comic book fan, there's just those panels that you read, and you're just like, "Damn!" I didn't. I I've never been a, a Guy Gardner fan with Green Lantern, but in a recent issue of uh, the Green Lantern comic from DC, I was like, "Holy shit, that's awesome!" He, yeah. It was a badass issue, and it's and that's when you have good writers. But that's another topic for <laughs> issues that are not on this list. Uh, moving on, number nine uh, would be Miles, actually, by Art Spiegelman. Uh, it was serialized from 1980 to 1991. It was one of the first graphic novels to receive significant academic attention in the English-speaking world. Uh, now, if you're unfamiliar with Miles, but you've heard it, I don't know if he's... If, 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 uh, I do not know if it's pronounced Mouse or Miles. It's spelled M-A-U-S. I'm not sure exactly, but let's just call it Miles. Uh, or, hell, Mouse. There you go. Make mouse. it easier. Mouse is uh, easier Because I'm sure that's what it means. But it's basically a retelling of Art Spiegelman's father's stories of living in Nazi-occupied Germany, except he tells it to where the mouse, or the mice, I should say, are the Jews, and the cats are the Nazis. Uh, it's what, I've only read it once. I don't need to read it again. It's not the happiest story, and it's not a superhero story. This is, it's a real story Told in comic mouse. form. So it's just mouse. Mouse. Okay, yeah, it's just, okay, the German word for mouse is mouse, except it's spelled <laughs> different. There you yeah. go, you learned something today. Uh, there are, I believe, two volumes of mouse. The fir- uh, it's, it's important to the landscape of comics is the reason it's lost. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic read, but it's, it's not a traditional comic book. This is not a book you get for your kids to read. This is a book you read as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, your kids are just going to be like, Where, when's Superman going to show up? Or Mighty Mouse or whatever. <laughs> this is... Uh, I mean, who's... Here? I didn't read this till much, much <laughs> later. Like, to like, wait, what is this? Oh, you have to read, you know... In college is when I discovered a lot of comics that I didn't read as a kid, but blew my mind mm. uh, when I eventually read them. And this was one of them, and I'm glad I didn't read it as a kid because it's it's heavy. It's, 
but it is entirely worth reading. It's an amazing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Trans, uh, juxtaposition of the Holocaust in yeah. the format that he did, and it's it's phenomenal. Uh, uh, all of the, every issue on in this list, I highly recommend that you read. Uh, that's Mouse at number nine. Uh, number eight, Squadron Supreme, uh, one through twelve, eighty-five through eighty-six, uh, written by Mark Grunewald and illustrated by Bob Hall. Uh, Squadron Supreme was basically Marvel's Justice League, and by that I mean you have a character named Hyperion who's Superman. Mm-hmm. You have Warrior Woman, I think was her name. Obviously, she's Wonder Woman. You had the Wizard, who was the Flash. You had Nighthawk. Night yeah, it was Hawk, Nighthawk. Yeah. Nighthawk's Batman. So Power Princess, that's her name. Warrior Woman was in the newest uh, iteration of it. But this was intended to be... like they, have, they had previous appearances in the Marvel Universe, but Squadron Supreme 1 through 12 is sort of almost like an Elseworlds sort of story a, a little bit to where a little more freedom in the storytelling... Like, Spider-Man doesn't show up. If I remember, it's, it's been a long time since I've read it, so I'm going strictly by memory. I'm pretty sure they didn't, because the Squadron Supreme in current comics are, like, from a different Earth, like Earth 3542 or something like that. But this is the original 12-issue miniseries, and it's it's dark. It's a, it's It's got tones of a, a comic you'll hear again before the podcast is over, Watchmen in it. Uh, same sport, not the same ballpark hmm. uh, as Watchmen. Uh, but interesting enough, uh, also when Mark Grunewald passed away, is uh, this was in the '90s, I believe. His ashes are actually mixed in in first printings of the trade paperback oh, wow. of Squadron Supreme One through Twelve. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's the best Justice League story. That's not the Justice League. Put it to you that way. Uh, there are some fantastic Justice League stories, but my favorite didn't take place in the '80s. So there you have no place on this countdown or this podcast. Uh, so moving on to number seven. Uh, this is going to, it's basically the single issue I'm going to talk about is Swamp Thing 21, but it, in, as far as Swamp Thing goes, you, you can't just read number 21. You have to read the entire Alan Moore run, which is issues 20. Uh, actually, I think he did 19. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a part of a story in 19, but Swamp Thing, let's say, let's say 19 through 58. He also did 60 and 61, 63, 64, and annual number two. It's his complete body of work on Swamp Thing. And he... Uh, it was Alan Moore with Stephen Bissett, uh, for particularly uh, number 21. You have different artists come in and out. It was released February 1984. But Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing arguably revolutionized storytelling in comics as much, if not more so, than even his later masterpiece of Watchmen and Dark Knight. Uh, if somebody said this was their favorite, I would not argue that point at all. Uh, but the reason I picked specifically issue 21 is because it redefines an origin story. Swamp Thing's been around for years. Never like a heavy hitter. He, he's, he's, he's popular now because people revisit this Alan Moore run of yeah. Swamp Thing. That's why we still have Swamp Thing comics, because of Alan Moore. Uh, and maybe the, night, the Wes Craven movie and the TV series, but those all came out of the revitalization of the character of the comics by Alan Moore. Uh, basically, what happens here, in a comic, here's your comic book 101, Swamp Thing 101, if you didn't know this, or if you just watch the movies. In the movies, he's a man that became a plant creature. This issue redefines that. And no, Alec Holland died. He's sentient plant who thinks that he's a hum- he was a human. It completely switches it. And of course, that sounds ludicrous when you say it out loud. Plants think that thinks they're human. No. Mm. Do androids dream of electric, sh- electric sheep? Same fucking thing, just dealing with plants. Yeah. Uh, but the actual story for it was called The Anatomy Lesson, and it's just, it's a fantastic, read that issue, and if you're not hooked, you, I mean, you will be hooked to read the rest of them. Thankfully, we got, uh, Trade Paperback's got you covered. His entire Swamp Thing run is collected in six volumes. Go to Amazon, get them, order them, Prime, you'll blaze through them. Some of the best comic books ever written, and guess what? All during the 80s. And this is only number seven. And again, I have these in numerical order, but I'm not going to say, I mean... Any of these could be number one to somebody I would not argue. This is not necessarily a list to debate what was the best com- single best comic book of the 80s. This is a retrospect- retrospective of what I think the top 10 individual properties or issues or series were that defined the 80s in terms of comics and made them such a mainstream media that they are today, uh, which also, of course, is because of Disney. <laughs> Pretty much. But uh, mm. speaking of Swamp Thing 21, moving on to number six, to G.I. Joe number 21. Now, this is a very personal pick. This wouldn't be on many people's top ten comic lists. 
But I remember getting G.I. Joe number 21 when it came out because March of 1984. Let me first say, I didn't get it when it came out, but I loved G.I. Joe as a four-year-old. I had a ton of comics. And I, the reason I, as a child, I loved this issue so much was because there was, I didn't know how to read yet. I was four. There were no, there were no word balloons in it. It's strictly silent. And guess what? It's a snake eye story. Mm. Now, the reason it's silent is not because it's genius, because it, it's a snake eye story. They just didn't have time to put the word balloons in before they went to press. Oh, jeez. Now, but also, again, being a four-year-old kid reading this, and then years later, I, I mean, it was tattered, folded up. I mean, again, I was four years old reading a comic book. Mm-hmm. Years later, this is like the most valuable issue in the G.I. Joe comic book run. Oh, wow. And... Once I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like I have this issue. And I look at it, the covers halfway off, crunk, you know, rips are out of it, et cetera, stuff like that. So, but because I'm such a G.I. Joe fan, I immediately went to eBay when I saw it was gaining heat and got a copy for like 10 bucks. Nice. Actually, no, I, I can't remember. I think I got it in like a bundle, like, you know, so it was like G.I. Joe 19 through 37 or something. 21 was in there, obviously. Right. So I got the bundle. So I, I got a, a decent copy of it, and I still have my G. I, I still have this comic, uh, not the one I grew up with because it was tattered beyond reasonable doubt to keep, but I ha- still have this one in my comic book collection to this day because this one is a particular special one to me. A love GI Joe. B it's a great issue, and all be excuse me all because of happenstance that it's amazing. Being Snake Eyes, who doesn't speak, in case you don't know the G.I. Joe reference when we were talking about why there's no word balloons and how it's awesome. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, moving on, number five, again, for the third time already, out of five, uh, six uh, dot points on the list, another Alan Moore book, this time Batman the Killing Joke. Uh, and the first appearance of Batman on the countdown won't be the last, because everybody should know what's coming up. Uh, but anyway, written by Alan Moore, illustrated by Brian Bolin, came out in March 1988. Uh, this is, a lot of people think Batman Arkham Asylum, could they consider that their definitive Joker story? But this is, to me, still my favorite Batman versus Joker story. Uh, don't watch the animated one that came out last year because they pervert the story. And that's, and believe me, I'm, when I say pervert the story, I mean not in a way that the story is actually perverted in the comics, but what they do with Batman and Batgirl, uh, that's not in the comics. So read the comic. It's a short read. It's a trade paperback, but I mean, it's like 40 pages, but you know, thick uh, cover, cardstock cover type thing. It's not like a paperback issue, so to speak, in, ter- in terms of a comic. Uh, but the reason it's important is, first of all, this is the key moments here. Uh, this is where Joker shoots Barbara Gordon and pretty much ends Batgirl's career until they retconned it to where she's got surgery or something and she's Batgirl again. Because mm. DC re- tends to reboot their universes every three years. Uh, but at the time, this was unprecedented in comics. And to, in fact, they had a, uh, in a recent issue of Batgirl, they paid homage to this comic by having the Joker dressed in his Hawaiian outfit that he wears when he shoots her on the cover of a current issue of Batgirl, drawing a smile on her face in blood, which is a reference to the killing joke. But they had to pull the cover because women... Women's rights groups got up. You just had it on there, top right. That's part of it. Got upset because it's showing that she's like weak and can't fight the Joker. No, it's referencing the Killing Joke and what he did to her then. She's it's totally different now. Uh, so again, it's uneducated people about the medium making. They probably never remarks. even looked at it before. Exactly, they have no concept of what what that means. It's a Killing Joke reference. Uh, don't you don't even get bother with Jared Leto's reference because <laughs> fuck that dude. If you want to talk about killing the Joker, Jared Leto did it. Uh, but anyway, killing Joker, and then also one of the best endings of any comic book ever. Uh, Batman and Joker are standing on the roof, and Joker tells a joke. Uh, I don't remember exactly word for word, but it's basically how two inmates are trying to escape, and they get to the roof, and there's no way to get across. So one of them says, here, I'll shine my flashlight across, and you can walk across the beam to get across. And dude's like, you think I'm stupid? You'll turn it off halfway. You'll turn off the flashlight when I'm halfway across. And then Batman, Joker just starts laughing, and then Batman starts laughing. So they, Batman and the Joker share a laugh. Hmm. And it's symbolic because basically the, the gist of the killing joke is how Batman and Joker are mirror images of each other. It's pretty much just they both had life-altering tragedies, but they handled them differently. Two sides of the coin. 
That's why you have, that's why Batman's arch nemesis is the Joker. Because arch nemesis, nemeses, to quote Mystery Men, they have to be that mirror image of the hero, but bad. That's why, that's when it works. That's why, uh, you know, I mean, Green Goblin is arguably Spider-Man's arch nemesis, especially now with what Peter Parker is, but Mm -hmm. the anti-Spider-Man is, in my opinion, is Venom. Because he's, there's, he does, uh, that's another debate for a comic book podcast. Do you think they had any knowledge of Joker and Batman whenever they were first created? Oh, like, no. Yeah. I mean, that was, the, what, the 40s, 50s? Yeah. They had no just, co- I mean, it was just a clown. Like, just funny how it worked out, yeah. And if you want to watch something really creepy that ties into Batman, watch, it's an old movie called The Man Who Laughs. And in fact, if I show Autumn a picture of the dude from it, she gets creeped out. But he was the, ins- the character in that is the inspiration for the Joker. And he looks creepy as hell. He looks creepier than any iteration of the Joker uh, in film, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, Killing Joke, number five. Number four, there is a plethora. That's it right there. Yeah. That's the inspiration for the Joker, as you clearly see. For sure. Uh, there is a plethora of fantastic X-Men stories in the 80s. Many of them are early 80s, such as Dark Phoenix, uh, Days of Future Past. Watch the video on SidgleyFilms.youtube.com. See me as Wolverine. And uh, see a great song that Jesse wrote, and good job directing as well. But anyway, uh, but for this countdown, I chose X-Men God Loves, Man Kills, written by the great legendary X-Men scribe Chris Claremont and illustrated by Brent Anderson, came out in 82. And the reason that... I pick this in terms of the X-Men stories from the 80s is simply because this is the story to where X- X-Men are comic book heroes. They fight the blob. They fight Magneto. Uh, but like Stanley said in Mallrats, you know, the X-Men were meant to deal with, were reflections of the prejudice of the time, which is why mm-hmm. they created. But, you know, there's not that many issues that really deal with that right. back then. It was, it was much like Mouse, Mouse, to where it's, you know, symbolically, this is what it's saying. God Loves, Man Kills is all about racism. And, again, when you say, who's the X-Men's arch nemesis? If you say anybody other than humanity, you're wrong. I mean, all the movies focus on that, too. Exactly, which, glad you brought that up. Good ones, anyway. Yeah, (laughs) which the best is, in my opinion, X2. And this X-Men, God Loves, Man Kills is the basis for X2. Hmm. Uh, but Stryker isn't uh, what he is in the movie. <laughs> right. But uh, this is the this is by far to me one of the most important and definitive X-Men stories because it's not about people in costumes that are the greatest danger to the mutant race. It's people. It's regular people and fear and racism. And this is the story that drives it home and knocks it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Fantastic story. Uh Spoiler alert, Magneto even teams up with him. Because, like, again, Magneto is not the X-Men's arch-villain. Yeah. Just because, oh, he was, he was in the cartoon so much? No, that's, that's not the point. There was a great backup story in, I think, the, the X-Men 1990 series Annual One where Jubilee and Wolverine's walking through the Danger Room. And she's like, Jubilee's like, Danger Room, show me the top ten X-Men villains. You know, who, who are the greatest villains for the X-Men? Like, Wolverine's with her, and he's, like, giving, like, commentary. Like, you know, they show the brew, and he's like, yeah, they're a bunch of snakes, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, it's number two, and it's like, Magneto's like, she's like, and Jubilee's like, what? How can Magneto be number two? And he's like, you don't get it, do you? And then it goes, mm-hmm. number one, it's like, and it shows people holding, like, die, mutie, scum, and he's like, hate will be, always be our greatest enemy. It's like, but this is one of the landmark works before that that laid that foundation. And look at, look at Claremont's work throughout the X-Men history. It's all, it's, he never forgets that and again there's brilliant his him and uh jim lee's run in the 80s into the 90s uh him and sylvester's run i still have most of those comics under my bed in my little short box to this day because they're some of the best comics ever written and in the 80s x-men and any of the x books were my favorite books at that point uh and spider-man and speaking of spider-man number three and again, my opinion would be the Craven's Last Hunt arc in Amazing Spider-Man 293 through 294. Also crossed over into Web of Spider-Man 31 and 32 and Spectacular 131 and 132 beginning in October 1987. Uh, written by J.M. DeMatteis or Mateus. I can't, I don't know how to pronounce that. There's a lot of vowels at the end. And uh, Mike Zeck. Uh, the reason this was, because again, when I was young, this was 87, so I was actually collecting and reading and trying to understand comics at this point. 
This is different from being four years old and reading a silent issue of G.I. Joe and just looking at the pictures and, oh, Snake Eyes is so cool. Mm-hmm. When, if you look at Spider-Man before this, and of course, this is Spider-Man in his black suit. And again, the 80s were the birth of Venom as well. Again, the anti-Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man, you usually don't equate him with having like a dark story in terms of the one number one and number two that we're about to talk about in terms of dark or and some of the grittier Batman stuff that like Killing Joke, for example, because Spider-Man's usually, you know, God, I got to get my homework and I got, oh, damn yeah. it, I forgot my date with Mary Jane. Mm-hmm. Not dissing that. That's fine. That, that's what made Spider-Man work so much because he was a relatable teenager. Spot this Spider-Man dies in this arc and comes back. Uh, obviously, because it's a comic book. But it's, I mean, he gets shot, you think he's dead. And uh, one of the reasons, I thought this was really interesting, one of the reasons that this was a crossover, and this, I, I never got this whole arc when I was collecting because I couldn't find, like, not everybody sold Spectacular or Web. And when I found one, I, might, I missed an issue. Uh, but, like, Web of Spider-Man 32, one of the most iconic covers for me growing up because it's Spider-Man coming out of the grave. Uh, here lies Spider-Man, and here he's coming out of it. Like, oh, he's not dead. Because back then, you didn't know what was going to happen. It's not like today, of course, they're not going to kill off Spider-Man. They're not going to kill off Captain America. If they do, they're coming back. They've, it, it's a trope that they'll never escape. I don't care who's holding Thor's hammer or whatever, or who's in Iron Man's armor at this point. Tony Stark will be back in the armor before you know it. Uh, the traditional Thor will be holding the hammer or a different hammer at some point. That's just how it works. But when you're a kid reading these comics, you know, no internet, no social media. All you have to do, all you have is the comic book itself and the letters column at the end and tune in next issue. You have no clue what's going to happen. I'm seven years old reading this shit. And this is, Spider-Man has some great runs and story arcs, but this one is still my favorite. It's, it's so brutal in its resolution. Uh, Strangely enough, this, it was originally a Wonder Man story concept and then eventually a Batman story concept that involved Batman and the Joker. Basically, the Joker killing Batman and realizing that everything, he was sane. Killing the Batman made him sane, which if you read Craven's Last Hunt, you see shades of that. And eventually, uh, J.M. DeMattis would actually get to write that Batman story in Legends of the Dark Knight, uh, number 65 and 68. But this... This is where it started, and that was just an idea for it, but he adapted to Spider-Man, and you get arguably one of the best, if not the best, Spider-Man story arc that there ever was. And when I was reading this as a kid, Vermin scared me. Like, reading the comic, like, he creeped me out. He was just unnerving. There's a moment in the series where uh, he, like, ambushes these cops out of a sewer, and then he just... He like stares at this one, just like mommy said, I can't do something. I forget what exactly what he says, but he like licks the dude's face mm. and then just runs off. And the dude's just laid on the car, like traumatized, like oh my god, oh my god, like freaking out. And that freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> it was terrifying that like, you know, you have Green Goblin or you have the Scorpion or Doctor Octopus. You know, they're tongue in cheek. They're still Doctor Octopus, still one of the greatest villains. Uh, and again, anybody wants to debate who has a better rogues gallery, Batman or Spider-Man? Spider-Man wins. Sorry. Hands down. We've had this discussion on the podcast before. But anyway. You could write to us. Yeah. 80svisit.com or on, t- on Twitter at 80svisited. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, Move it. And then, you know, c- most comics didn't have blood in them, especially Marvel comics. If it was, it was black. Uh, another, in the same series, when Craven eats a shotgun, yeah, it... I was like, oh my God, like he's dead? <laughs> he, like, he, he killed himself? This was revolutionary at the time, especially in um, Marvel's arguable flagship title, Spider-Man, having to deal with this. Pretty damn brutal and pretty damn awesome and just a fantastically deep, dark story. Uncharacteristically dark for Spider-Man, especially at that time. And I really can't think of another one that's right before that panel. Mm. He blows his head off. Uh, I doubt they're going to follow it up. <laughs> it's got to be on there somewhere if you're interested. You can find it. But uh, anyway, yeah, Craven's Last Hunt. Phenomenal story. Again, 1987 on that one. Two left. It doesn't matter which order we do them. There it is. Yep. And I was, I was like, oh my God. Eh. Uh, but anyway, uh, it goes without saying, if you're a comic book fan and you know anything about comic book history, there's two particular books I have not mentioned and you know what they are. I guarantee you know that one's got to be Watchmen and one's got to be Dark Knight Returns. 
it doesn't matter which one someone thinks is better. I will never argue if you say either one of those or any, like I said before, any of these are your, you would say are the best books that came out in the 80s. You're not wrong. Uh, let's just start with Dark Knight Returns first. Uh, written and drawn by the great Frank Miller. Uh, as we mentioned, dirty, big Dirty Harry fan. Uh, this, uh, this series released February through June 1986. And it was actually inspired by our first Dirty Harry film, Sudden Impact, because Miller got the idea of how that was a sudden impact was the first dirty Harry film in like what seven eight years so it was an older dirty Harry he was coming back you know he wasn't coming out of retirement he was still a cop but it was a return to the character and he was older and grittier well supposedly quote unquote grittier uh, but inspired he thought well what if Batman retired you know went away and then came back and thus we get in my opinion the best Batman story ever told the Dark Knight Returns. Uh, they did make an animated version of that as well as a killing joke. I didn't watch it. Uh, Two parter. Yeah. But from the screenshots that I've seen, it looks pretty accurate. But again, I haven't watched it because it's animated. So just read the graphic novel. It's, it, it's basically animated for there. And some of, again, you want to talk about iconic comic book moments and scenes? Dark Knight Returns is full of them. Absolutely full of them. The cover where he's jumping with the lightning bolt, often like parodied in numerous other things. Other co- other comic book brands use that, have even paid homage to that. Uh, the, him fighting. If you know Frank Miller's art, you know how amazing it is. And honestly, now hearing about Inspired by Sudden Impact and how big of a Dirty Harry fan it is, you can tell. Just look at Sin City. Look at uh, any of Frank Miller's stuff, the, how it's, it's silhouette. It's black, heavy, like... Lots of just solid black area over light sources. Very distinct, very dramatic, very beautiful at that. But uh, it, and Dark Knight Returns, along with Watchmen, is considered the official beginning of the modern slash dark age. And they throw dark age in there. A lot of people do because this is when this is what started heroes becoming darker. Yeah. This is why we have the brooding Batman and not you know, well, old chum. I guess we better head back to the Batmobile and rehydrate these world leaders this is a dramatic shift in the tone of comics in the 80s uh that separated it from everything that had come before excuse me landmark works uh some of the key moments for there one of my favorite is when he basically because batman doesn't exist anymore like the new like you have new it's like starship troopers you have news reports like you know blah 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 bruce wayne was in a car accident the the vigilante mutants are hurting these people you know, and, and strangely enough, apparently the Two Face is back or something like that. And then like Batman's like, "Well, shit, can't let this. This can't like my city's fallen to ruin." And then like they, it's a buildup in the comic of him putting back on the suit. And then the big splash page where he's like jumping out, like the rain on my chest is a baptism. I'm born again. It's like the baddest ass shit ever <laughs> uh, that Batman's ever done. And he's make and it, the thing is, it's real in that he makes mistakes like. Uh, he's old. He's like, I can't do this anymore. He gets his ass kicked by this mutant leader, like to within an inch of his life, barely lives. Then comes back and beats the shit out of Superman. Kryptonite gauntlets, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> like literally puts him on and beats the shit out of Superman. Phenomenal. And it's, and it, and Dark Knight Returns was super relevant to the 80s with everything going on with Reagan and different political things. It was super relevant, uh, not only to the time, but revolutionized Batman as a character every and revolutionized comics since then. That's why you hear Frank Miller's name and Alan Moore's associated with the greatest story arcs ever. And Frank Miller didn't just like write incredible Batman stories like in addition to Dark Knight Returns, uh, Batman Year One. He had his Daredevil run, which was phenomenal as well. He created Bullseye and Elektra. Uh, it's him and Alan Moore both just two of the greatest minds ever both came to fruition and hit their stride and had some of their, their uh, yes, had their best work in the 80s and it revolutionized comic books. Uh, also, finally in The Dark Knight Returns, Batman kills the Joker and it's just amazing. Like, I should, like, like how many people would I save if I, do? he realizes it finally what you said, what you think. Like, if you kill him, you would have saved this many people. And he's like, he comes to that realization just snaps his neck. It's just mm. badass. And of course, beats the shit out of Superman. You can't beat that. There it is right there. Right yeah. after he kills him. Just uh, such, I've read that more times than I've probably seen Star Wars, to be perfectly honest. It's four issues, but it's so beautiful. And it's just, it has those moments that you rewatch a movie for. 
Uh, Watchmen, uh, moving on, number one, Watchmen. Again, it doesn't matter what number you put on it. Uh, Watchmen has to be on here. Uh, I, I haven't read Watchmen as much as Dark Knight Returns simply because Watchmen is a lot to read. You have all the, the supplemental material at the end of the issues. You have the Tales of the Black Freighter. All sorts of stuff. It's, it's not, not, that's not a knock against it. It's just to reread Watchmen, it takes a little more... I can just kind of just zone out and read Dark Knight Returns. And that's not a diss at that. It's just because it's telling the story uh, in a different way than Watchmen. Watchmen is so deep. Every single panel means something. You want to talk about a good director? Look at Alan Moore and what Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons did in a print medium with Watchmen. Just everything. Hmm. And when you watch the movie, again, like I said before, when, when 300 came out, I was like, when I, when I first read, speaking of Frank Miller, he did 300 as well. When I first read that in graphic novel form, I was like, God, this is a movie. They just need, this needs, they just need to take these scenes and put them to film. And that's what Zack Snyder did with 300, with Watchmen, and won't, won't speak of anything else that he's done for now. Uh, <laughs> then he thought he could do it himself. Yeah. Sucker punch anyone. <laughs> Which, hey, you know, if you, if you put it on mute and put on some Metallica or something, it's a good time <laughs> and for the background. But uh, Watchmen as a comic, just, you, there, is, there are very few things that you can put in the same ballpark as it, and we've talked about them on this podcast. Uh, it is leagues above anything else. Uh, it's transcended comics to be considered by several critics and reviewers to be one of the most significant works of the of literature for the 20th century. Uh, I want to say I've read this somewhere, I'm aware, but and there was a list like Time, well, I think Time Magazine or some big publication put out like the hundred greatest books ever written, and Watchmen was the only graphic novel to be on that list. And we say graphic novel, it was a 12 issue miniseries. It was a comic book. Of course, if you're going to read it, you need to get the graphic novel. You can't just get individual issues. You need to read it in total and absorb the beautifulness of every single panel in it. It's absolutely phenomenal and gorgeous. I can't say enough good. I can't suck its dick enough. In fact, if my graphic novel, Watchmen, had a dick, I would suck it because it's so fucking good. So beautiful. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and, and I'm surprised they haven't done like the sex toy version with Dr. Manhattan's. It's just yeah. Elvis. Well, they don't name it that, but they're yeah. out there. Yeah, they, they have to be. I'm sure they are. But uh, and the thing about watching, if you if you've just seen the movie, a lot of people didn't like the movie because it's such a departure from the comic. But look, you have to understand. You're, I love the movie. Not as, the, the graphic novel's better. So before you start sending your hate mail, however, they handled the movie in I think the best way possible to handle a movie adaptation of this source material. You have to change the ending. Uh, now, granted, they could have had the same ending, and I would have went with it because it makes sense in the comic. But there's so much more build-up. There's so much more expedition exposition done visually, thanks to Dave Gibbons, and just all the supplemental stuff in the comic that bring it home and make it so impactful when you see it, when you read it. Uh, but nevertheless, I love the movie personally. Uh, but the gist of Watchmen examines what superheroes would be like, according to more in a credible real world. And as the story became more and more complex, more said about Watchmen, quote, that power and the, about, that became more about power and the idea of the Superman manifest within society, which personified in Dr. Manhattan. Uh, and the title of the series uh, refers to the question, who watches the Watchmen, which you see the graffiti everywhere, uh, which is from, uh, famously posed by the Roman satirist Juvenal, as quis codiet ipos custodes in Latin. Uh, so yeah, there you go if you want to know the, why it's called Watchmen. Uh, but that's why in what speaking of Zack Snyder when watching Batman versus Superman one of my favorite parts was the fact that when he's about to when he's beating the shit out of Superman on the wall in graffiti who watches the Watchmen I was like oh yeah but that's it <laughs> because it simply references Watchmen but some of my favorite moments uh, every scene with a comedian and if you want to talk perfect casting from a comic to a movie Jeffrey Dean Morgan never saw him in anything until this until the movie watching, oh, you know, yeah. just like that is, I don't know who this guy is, but I love him and he's perfect as the comedian. So much that the Halloween following this movie, I was a comedian and Autumn was Silk Spectre, the younger one. So it was really weird because I was, it's, you know, canonically I was the dad and she was my daughter and we're making out <laughs> in the corner, but she looked really hot in that costume and it was awesome to be the comedian. <laughs> uh, and I'm, that's why the second I heard Jeffrey Moore was going to be on Walking Dead, I was like, oh God, yes. <laughs> 
because he's just he's a great uh, just and especially because Negan is basically the comedian in just a different you know in in a different universe like in an alternate earth that's that same character but it's where there was a zombie apocalypse I'm not saying anything about his performance I'm just saying that that tone of that character cynical Hmm. you know this is the way the world works that's how the comedian is that's why he's called a comedian because he sees the joke reread Watchmen if you don't get that because it's all there uh, I mean, honestly, I mean, if I had to choose the best, I would choose personally. My choice would be Watchmen as number one. But again, I want it doesn't matter, in as long as it's one of these you know seminal works of comic book history. Uh, so, but uh, also probably the greatest moment in comic book history to me is uh, the last issue of Watchmen, where Ozymandias tells him it's in the movie. They did a great job with it in the movie, where just like you know. I'm going to do this and I'm going to have this hit New York at this time, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Night Owl and Rorschach are just like, are you, are you crazy? You told us. You just told us what you're going to do. You know we're going to stop you. And he's like, oh, please, I'm not a comic book villain. I did it 35 minutes ago. Mm. Bop, mic drop, end of story. They can't, the heroes can't win. But Ozymandias prevented World War III. You know, so then it's like, okay, who's like, that's, that's Watchmen. It's these questions that you're thinking at the end, like, who's, what's happening here? And yep. then they let him, you know, they, they basically are forced to agree with him. Rorschach has to get Dr. Manhattan, spoiler alert, well, you've seen the movie probably, to kill him because he knows that he can't keep this secret to protect the world. And then that's what has to be done. You have to protect the world. That's what heroes ultimately do. Although what they have to do in the movie and in, in especially the graphic novel isn't very superheroic. But it's... Uh, what well, must be done. Exactly. You know, and, you know, let's tie it to history real quick before we wrap up. You know, uh, I believe it was John Adams famously like burned a whole bunch of records in his front yard about the Revolutionary War. And when asked why, he said, because if people knew what we had to do to win independence, we wouldn't be here or, you know, basically no, protecting legacy and, and history. You wouldn't like us very much. <laughs> exactly. And, that, and that's unfortunately, that's what the comedian saw. And that's how the real world works, yeah. you know, and that is why you have Watchmen. And you don't have, and as you know, coming out at the same time, well, uh, where you know, I mean, all, everything. Most of the books in the eighties were so much more mature, and that's the comics we grew up on, these mature comics. And then Image comes out, and has some flashy art, and the story's just like these suck. <laughs> Young Blood, uh, okay. Uh, I didn't buy any of those. Well, me and my friend Jason, like, because because Jim Lee, like my fa- still my favorite artist of all time. I still have a card he sent for me when I sent him suggestions for the letter name of the letter section in his Death Blow comic, which had great art, but it was a stupid fucking comic. <laughs> but whatever Jim Lee does, I'm there, just because I'm there for the art. And thankfully, he went to, he's now a bigwig at DC and does right. a lot of DC stuff. He, his recent run on Suicide Squad, phenomenal art, decent story, better than the movie. His run on Batman with Hush was phenomenal. One of the best Batman stories since the 80s, <laughs> for lack of a better description. But yeah, so... Watchmen number one, so there you go. My top ten picks for the best comic books and most influential comic books of the 80s, the decade where the entire comic book landscape changed for the better, and the reason pretty much everything involving related to comic books is where it is now, is fallout from this, from these comics, and how the medium changed when you had genuine talent. Not just drawing somebody, punching somebody in the face, but punching somebody in the face and their blood splatter on the wall of a picture of somebody else foreshadowing something that happens three issues later. Genius. Absolute genius. And of course, numerous comics did come out in the 80s. So just a couple of honorable mentions to wrap it up. I mentioned Frank Miller's Daredevil run. Also, the 80s saw it came out with the birth of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which again, keeping with this theme, if you read the first Ninja Turtles comic, it's not happy-go-lucky like the fucking cartoon. They're killing people and killing Shredder. Yeah. So, uh, 80s comics. Again, uh, DC Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, early 80s, before, you know, still technically in the uh, Bronze Age of the Dark Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past. Marvel had Secret Wars. Uh, Spider-Man 300 with Venom coming out. Uh, Uncanny 251, probably one of my favorite comic book covers of all time. It's the one with Wolverine crucified on the X. A uh, lot of, again, Claremont and on X-Men. Unbeatable. Uh, Batman Year One, again, Frank Miller. So that's just some honorable mentions. But again, if, if, if you're new to comics or you, you never read a lot of the 80s comics and you don't see what the big deal is, here's a list. Start with those. 
believe me, you there's these these hold up. Originally, when I, I actually just wrote this today because I just got on a comic book kick. I was like, ah, oh, I'm going to read some of these before we do the show, but that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to read. It's a lot to go on. But uh, you know, luckily my memory isn't fading too too fast, so I'm sure I got most of my recollections correct. But uh, let us know your favorite comic books of the '80s and anything that you're currently reading, because I still I do still read comics. I don't collect them. Thank you, uh, iPad and photo apps for uh, getting me all the comics I need. Yep, they're so, not collectible, but at least yeah. you get the read. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if even if they weren't worth anything when I collected them, I would still collect them because I like to read them. I like the art. Co- comic books are the com- are the perfect combination of visual medium and written word because they're both together. And uh, I, I'll read a bad comic with good art. I mean, for fantastic art, and I'll read a fantastically told comic with bad art. But I will not read a comic with bad art and a bad story. <laughs> it's a waste of time. Exactly. Because there's so much better out there. But send us your uh, picks for your favorite comics, any that we miss. Because again, you know, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a com- I don't have a PhD in comic books, but uh, I definitely have a bachelor's degree in it. So let us know. 80svisit at gmail.com, at 80svisit on Twitter. Uh, hit us up on there, especially because uh, it's, it's a little lonely. Uh, leave us some reviews on iTunes and just let us know what you excuse me, think uh, at 80svisit at gmail.com. And that'll do it for this episode. And we'll be back next week with our long put off Bill Paxton tribute episode as we talk about weird science. And until then, I will go home and read some of these comic books. <laughs> and I will still be Trey Harris. Jesse Sedgley. Cowabunga! Find this show and more on facebook.com slash awesomepods and follow us on Twitter at AwesomePods. 